All right, everybody. Uh, welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. We are on episode 159 already. Uh, this week, we're going to be tackling more listener questions uh, with our panel. Right now, we got Jake Mason, Chris Jones, Jim Reed. Uh, we got this thing covered, man. It's going to be some good discussion. And a uh, reminder that, as always, we are sponsored by Running Aces Racetrack and Casino and also by Learn Pro Poker. So check those guys out. Give them your business for sure. Uh, running Aces Players of the Week, and it's painful, man. All Every week is painful for me to have to mention some of these people on air. I mean, last week we did the Fly Eagles Fly thing. It was very painful. But Jay Brousseau, great player. Sorry, I got to give a shout-out to Jay. Uh, player of the Week, Josh Harwell, Brian Morey, Be the Kid, uh, Alberto Briones Moraz, who's part of our Rec Poker Nation, and Donovan Kimmis. So congratulations to those guys for picking up some bonus lammers for being the Running Aces Players of the Week. Uh, we had a few binks uh, from among our membership this this last week since our last podcast. So Alberto uh, did uh, take the $30 uh, tournament. Uh, I don't know why it says $43. That was a, that's a typo. It was like $430. I think they did a multi-weight shot. But Alberto uh, took down officially the $30 tournament running aces. Rob Adsum, not a bink, but a nice deep run out at the win, uh, turning $400 into $7,600 with his fifth place finish out of 456 and Steve Webb, he still hasn't told me about his bust out hand yet, uh, but he made a nice deep run in the MSPT this last weekend. So congratulations to Steve-O and, and a few announcements uh, for those of you who missed it. Uh, five more hours of great content that we dropped last week. Super excited about what we put out there uh, for the membership. If, if you're not a member, go check that out. You can get 30 days uh, to try it out for free. Go to rec.poker, check it out, but some just great content uh, out there. And Chris Jones was behind a good chunk of that. Uh, so thanks to Chris. But congratulations to Jill Burke. She took down our December home game on Poker Stars. Uh, I was very frustrated with Jill. <laughs> Not really, but uh, I, had my, I had my kings up against her, and she defended with queen six, flop two pair, and that was curtains for me. I finished in third place. But David Bear, who's been on kind of a tear, everything he's playing, he finished in second place. But congrats to Jill. And a shout-out to John Somsky. He's been organizing this thing. Uh, for the last four months, and he's got good plans for next year. Uh, really excited. If you haven't already heard, go check out rec.poker slash home game. Uh, John has set up a league for next year. We're going to be tracking points for this thing uh, first Wednesday of every month. He's also adding a second Wednesday of the month, a mixed games league. Uh, and we're going to be trying to figure out how to do some tutorials and some content leading up into each of those home games. Uh, but John is putting out the schedules for that, and that's going to be really fun. It's all free. You don't need to be a member. This is just wide open to the public. Come join us. We just have a blast out there uh, playing on Wednesday nights. Also, this Wednesday, Chapter 6 of the Andrew Brokus book. So if you guys are tracking along with that, playing Optimal Poker, it's kind of GTO for the every everyday player, and it's been super helpful to understand some of the concepts. So you're welcome if you're a member to join that conversation. We'll record it make it available back to the members. Uh, that's coming up this Wednesday. And then Maria Ho, the long-awaited visit uh, from Maria Ho. Uh, she's had to defer a couple of times, but we've got her locked in. As of yesterday, she confirmed again. Uh, now I'm sort of in this place where I'm confirming these people, but every day just to make sure that they're still locked in. But uh, she has to do a daytime deal. So if you are around uh, next Monday at 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time, uh, we're going to be interviewing Maria Ho. Uh, we'll try to make that available on Facebook Live. Certainly we'll be recording it and making that available as a podcast. So. Uh, if you want to join that conversation, we have a few openings. If you want to join the panel on there, uh, especially since it's during the day, uh, and you're welcome to submit any questions, and we'll we'll try to get through as many as we can. 
Uh, hey, Jake is on here too. Maybe Jake, I'll let you do the, uh, the update on the NFL survivor pool. We're getting down to the, the real deal now. Yeah, we're down to two people now after Tim Carroll was eliminated last week. So we're down to Alejandro Casas and Kevin Kelsenberg. So yeah, it'll be exciting to see who can take this thing down. Do you, you think, uh, Jake, in your honest uh, professional opinion, is there anything Kevin Kelsenberg can't do? <laughs> I mean, at this point, I've been, uh, yeah, at this point, I. Starting to wonder. Starting to have doubts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even <laughs> even his son, too. It's it's something. Yeah, so, I mean, Kevin owned a restaurant forever. Uh, you know, the what, did the, what was it called? The Eat? Nope, uh, the Ideal Diner. Ideal Diner. Minneapolis. Yeah, he owned that forever. Then he takes up poker and he crushes poker. And now apparently yeah. he's good at NFL Survivor Pool. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there's not much money in this for him, but. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, congrats to those guys for, for continuing. We'll see who wins the, uh, the heads up battle there. Uh, and also I know Jake, you were involved in a couple of conversations out on the discord channel. We went ahead and added a, a fantasy football channel out there too. For those of you who are into kind of that uh, discord, if you don't know, it's kind of a free wide open chat room uh, that's available for, for anybody. Uh, you can jump on there, go to the, go to rec.poker and get the information on how to join there. But people like Jake who are great minds at fantasy football can give you some insight and some picks. Uh, one thing I would just add real quick is yeah. if anyone has any questions, especially with the fantasy football playoffs coming up, I'd be happy to answer them too. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I listen to you guys talking like, what, what is happening? I don't get it, but it's, it's impressive nonetheless. Um, yeah. Thanks for that, Jake. And then just kind of a final announcement. I know we've had a lot of announcements today, but just go to, go to rec poker, man. We're, we're trying to keep that up, updated uh, as much as we can. A lot of great information out there. Go just check it out. Uh, pop around in, in and out of different tabs there. A lot of good stuff. I think you'll be surprised at how much good stuff is out there for you to, to take advantage of. So with that, anything else from the panel? I mean, did I, any other announcements? I mean, I know you can never have enough announcements on a podcast. I know that's just <laughs> – they're shaking their head like, get on with this, dude. All right, let's get on with this. Uh, we've got three hands. And as always, you guys are welcome to submit hands, submit questions. We can't get to all of them. Uh, but we did choose three for tonight for this crew to, to kind of go through and, and give our opinions on. So there's a lot of words on the screen if you're watching this, but if you're just listening to the podcast, we'll try to do our best to make sure that you have all of the information uh, that you need to, to follow along here. But the first one is from Josh Schwartz. Uh, Josh is just starting up a, a FPN, a free poker network league out in Colorado. And so him and I have connected. It's been kind of fun to see his journey and he's excited about what's going on there. But uh, he had this question uh, from, from one of the tournaments that he played uh, online that he wanted some of our perspectives on. So. We have the right, we have the wizards here to answer these questions. Uh, luckily, I just get to facilitate and turn it over to the wizards. Uh, but, but Josh is playing an online tournament. The blinds are 1530. Uh, it's really early in the tournament. He says he doesn't know much about his opponents. Uh, he says the villain seems solid, if not a little bit on the tight side, but it's still a little early to, to really be able to tell. Um, Josh is under the gun uh, with 2,300 chips. So what is that, 75 big blinds or so? And he's got pocket jacks, uh, two black jacks, and he raises to 90. He says, because I didn't have my betting set up to bet 2.2, LOL. <laughs> but Josh opens to 3x under the gun with pocket jacks. And then the player directly on his left, under the gun plus one, with about 60 big blinds, uh, makes the call. And the big blind also calls. So there's three ways. Uh, the pot is 310 chips. And then the flop comes 488 rainbow. And the big blind checks. And Josh bets 360 uh, into a pot of 310. So a big, a big chunky bet there. 
and under the gun plus one calls and the big blind folds. So the pot is now 1,030, and it looks like uh, under the gun plus one must have around 1,300 chips somewhere in there. Josh must have around 1,800 chips somewhere in that ballpark with the pot of 1,000. So we're getting pretty close here to, uh, to being an all-in moment, I think. Uh, the turn uh, is the five of the fourth suit, so completely rainbow board. So flushes are not are irrelevant, but the a five comes on the turn. Um, so now we have a board of four, eight, eight, five. And Josh decides to check, and then under the gun bets 580. And Josh tanks and folds and shows his pocket jacks. And uh, and I, I asked Josh, um, we kind of went back and forth a little bit just to clarify a couple of things on here. And I did ask him about the, you know, the large bet uh, on the flop. And he said he's been trying to apply this thing that he's been learning from Assassinato, uh, which is Alex Fitzgerald, uh, where you overbet the pot if there's no cards over nine and you have strong equity against all ace-x hands or the X is less than the, your lowest card. So we can talk a little bit about that, unpack a little bit. But I, I did ask him, wanted to make sure that the 360 was a correct uh, amount. So that's what he said there. And then he said, uh, ultimately, my decision came down to a gut read. Uh, that something was off. Was it GTO? Nope, not even close. <laughs> uh, he says, I spun it to 11th, but I'm trying to figure out if I could have saved a bit here or taken a different line to maybe get to showdown with the same investment. Okay, Wizards, what do you think? Jake. So I guess my first thought is, well, the first thing I'd like to know is what the starting stack is. If I had to guess, it's probably around 2,000 chips. Um, and also, is it a rebuy tournament? Because for me specifically, I do. It, it, I guess if I were to play this hand, I'd probably just go with it and then rebuy. Obviously, I don't know the buy-in amount. I don't know what the bankroll is relative to the buy-in, all that, if you will. But the first thing I like to think of is, I mean, I'm totally fine with three X rays early on. I mean, I don't typically do, you know, like the min raise or two point two X rays until later in the tournament when Andy's kind of come into play. So I'm totally fine with that. I mean, you could maybe even go 4X since you're under the gun. Um, but other than that, I think that's standard. Uh, and then when you're talking under the gun plus one calling, that's what I like to call positional awareness, where this person is calling knowing that there's everyone else yet to act behind him. So in theory, his hand should be – it should be strong, but, I mean, it is an online tournament early on, so that's not necessarily the case, I think. Um, and then as far as the flop goes, 488. I mean, unless he really has something like, you know, like 7-8 suited or, you know, something like that. I mean, jacks are probably going to be ahead most of the time. And I would think that queens plus with three bet preflop. So I'd like to think you're probably still good here. But, I mean, yeah. And then as far as the over bet, I'm not really familiar with the concept. But I, to me, it's like when you over bet in this spot and then get cold called with another player to act behind, I do feel like that is pretty strong. So that's what's one thing I would keep in mind there. And then as far as the turn, bringing in the uh, five, the rainbow five, the, really shouldn't change anything. I mean, there are some random straights that could potentially get there, like six, seven, I guess. But Yeah, maybe a sticky pocket fives or something. Sure, it's yeah, possible. But, certainly yeah. possible. But, I mean, you would think that on an overbet on the flop, I mean, you right. probably wouldn't be calling with those hands. Right. So I guess for me, the hand, I think it's just like, Okay, you're, in his eyes, he probably thinks he's way ahead, way behind. But at the same time, what's really changed as far as like the board? Nothing really. So really, for you, for him to make this fold, I feel like he almost put his opponent on an overpair 
the entire way, or maybe like a, you know, some sort of pseudo connector that contained an eight. I mean, yeah, I mean, it online's obviously tough too, because, you know, you don't have, you know, you know, there aren't really any specific reads you can go off of or anything like that. So, yeah. Okay. Chris? Yeah, I, I you know, I think um, I'm obviously fine until we get to the flop. I want to talk about this. Um, I think, you know, and I'm not here to question Alex Fitzgerald or Sassanato, and I've, I've seen this uh, uh, thing before, but I think these are the kind of things that you have to look at and understand the principles, sort of why we're doing this in the first place. Um, and I think in this situation, we have to be situationally aware a little bit more. When, when under the gun plus one uh, cold calls us, um, that's a really specific range in my mind, especially if our read of them being a solid, if not tight player. Um, so I think we're, we're looking, we're, we're knocking out the very top end of their range, but we're also knocking out uh, a lot of the kind of the really speculative hands and this really smacks to me if if we're if our read is right and this is a solid if not tight player uh, we are talking a really narrow band of a range um for for my read there and so when when we're talking about this assassinato thing of of putting in that that overbet here i think that's more um something we might look for in a situation where uh, we're we're getting called by say the button or the big blind and and we're we're in this type of flop situation. In this situation, I feel like we're only putting out we're putting out this overbet and we're we're putting ourselves in a really tough situation when we do face this call. And I don't think we need to be there. This is the kind of flop where I think a even a pretty small continuation bet is going to get the job done. And if it, it doesn't, we still have a lot more room to navigate. Um, so it's one of those where I'm, I, I, I'm not a big fan of that, of that overbet in this particular situation. Um, but I don't know what others think. Is that generally because it's such a dry board or is that? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, you know, when you have the, the, the paired board like this, um, especially with it, like to me, if under the gun plus one is, as we read a solid player, like the eights that they have in their range are, uh, you know, I, pocket eights really. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, and so, I mean, I feel like we are putting ourselves in a, in a, I mean, we can, we can accomplish the same thing we're wanting to accomplish, uh, with that CBAT at half the price. Um, and we can then, uh, that slows down the whole progression of this hand. Um, so that uh, I would, I would put out something like into a pot of three ten. I'd, I'd put out a bet a little under probably 40%. So, mm-hmm. you know, something like one twenty, one thirty. Um, and you know, I feel like from there we can progress, um, I think it's quite likely we still have the best hand um, once under the gun um, continues and bets out. Um, and in fact, if we do that smaller C bet, um, I am on this turn, I'm much more likely in that situation to then lead big on the turn rather than lead big on the flop. 
Yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, I kind of like this line if the intention is to then check check call or check call turn and river because it, it, it almost looks bluffy, right, when you're betting this big. Right. Uh, so if they call you, then, you know, then you check turn and you do that as, as an, with full intent to check raise or to, or to call because now you're underrepresenting your hand. You look like you took a stab, then you check. For me, that's, that's the line I would take with this sort of a big, a big bet on the flop. But I think, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's sort of what are we trying to accomplish here? And again, I don't know the Alex Fitzgerald stuff either as much as, much as some of these guys do. But, um, you know, I think, I, I think when you bet that big, I think, it, you know, you're sort of asking the pocket seven, sixes, fives, threes, you know, whatever else might be in there that had flatted you pre-flop. You're, you're, you're inviting those people to fold, which you don't want, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of taking these hands, these marginal hands, and you're making them fold when you really don't want them to. And the, the the other thing I'd say about that, about the big sizing, is I think when we're doing things where we're uh, kind of going outside of sort of sort of optimal play or GTO style play, and we're going to like this sort of exploitive overbet, is we have to be sure that we're playing opponents who are going to be sizing responsive. And you know, I, mm. I don't know this field and I don't know this tournament and I don't, but you know, if I'm playing, I don't, and I don't know, you know, anything about this, but if I'm <laughs> playing an online pretty short stacked tournament um, and we're in early levels, I'm not necessarily sure that my opponents are going to be that sizing responsive and understand that, Oh, this is an overbet here. So I shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z. Mm. And so, and I think if, so if we start doing that, we start to outsmart ourselves, I think a little. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And a lot of the kind of techniques like this that we're talking about really should only be used against particular opponents that you expect it to have a, a particular effect on. Um, player pools aren't going to have consistent enough responses to these kind of moves uh, where it sort of depends on, do they think it's strong or do they think it's weak? Uh, you know what I mean? Um, when, particularly when it comes to the sizing of betting over betting, uh, if they're not, if they're not, going to respond differently than they would for a two thirds pot bet or something like that, then I just don't think you get enough from it to warrant the extra cost. But it went, what, what do we think he's actually calling that flop bet with here? I'd be curious to see what the panel has to think about that. Like what are the actual hands that he's calling that over bet on such a dry board with there? Yeah, I guess I, go I, I was, I was going to say, I guess for me, it probably probably be like, what pocket tens, pocket nines, pocket sevens, pocket fives. You know, I mean, a lot of the pocket pairs, maybe some straight draws, but again, I probably rule those out since they were, you know, since it was a raise from under the gun and called from under the gun plus one. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily put our opponent on an overpair here. And I guess the other way I look at it too is if, if we're in the opponent's hands and we have one of those other types of hands, like pocket sevens or pocket nines or tens or whatever, and our opponent raises them with a gun, call, flop is eight eight four. Our opponent c bets into us. We call one time with the middle pocket pair, turns the ragged five, and our opponent checks to us. Now I, I probably do lead out with pocket sevens or something. You know, like thinking my opponent has ace king or ace queen. T- you know, a hand like that. So. I just think there's, you know, I, I think if you put yourself in your opponent's situation, I mean, your opponent would probably bet a hand like that on the turn that you're still ahead of. John, did you have something there? 
Yeah, I was just going to say, so I'm not um, super familiar with this particular uh, tactic from Alex Fitzgerald, but it seems to me that you wouldn't necessarily want to target flops with a pair on the board because you really want to, it'd be better for flops where the top pair is paired their hand. So they have an ace eight and it's four, six, eight or something like that, where now you're in good, good space against it, but against a tight under the gun plus one player, they shouldn't be having any of those ragged ace hands or not very many of them. So there aren't very many to target in this situation. And uh, if they did have an ace eight, now they've got you beat. So you don't actually have great equity against them. And all of the other hands, like, so they probably don't have a pair bigger than yours because kings and aces definitely would have raised and probably queens would have raised pre-flop as well. Uh, so I like the pocket pair uh, idea of putting them on a pocket pair, but it's probably a pocket pair that would be tens or lower. I guess they could have jacks as well, but that's unlikely. There's exactly one combo of that left. So I, I guess I'm agreeing with Chris mainly that I don't necessarily think the overbet was a good idea on this particular texture of the flop, keeping in mind that I have not studied this particular line from Alex. So maybe it's the perfect thing and I just don't know any better, but it doesn't seem like it's a good fit for me. And, and I think the what Jake said makes a lot of sense in that once he does call that flop bet, I mean, he should be betting every turn. He should be betting every hand in his range on the turn when you check to him because the hands, the hands that he gets there with are strong enough already that I can't imagine a hand that he actually would check behind on the turn when you, when you uh, check to him in that spot. Whereas you, if you were to make the flop bet smaller, uh, well, I'm not sure if that would make it any better on the turn, but at least you'd have fewer chips in the pot. Yeah, I think it gives you an opportunity to get to the river. If you if you make a smaller bet, just with the stack sizes too, I mean, that's part of it for me is with these stack sizes, you're you're making a pretty big commitment uh, of your stack. I and mean, if he, if your opponent started with 1,800, they put in 90, so they've got about 1,700 left, and you put in 20% of their stack, you know, you're getting pretty close to being, you know, committed here or committing them, uh, I guess, as, a, as you should say. But, I, I yeah, the bet sizing for me, again, I don't understand all the principles of it, but it's just – I feel like you're forcing your opponent to play optimal and they're, they're going to be folding uh, a lot of hands that you beat that they otherwise might've called with. Uh, and they're going to be calling the most of the stuff that they call with is going to beat you and it's going to put you in a really tough spot. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I look at this spot here too and I go, you know, if it's eight, eight, four and I got pocket jacks, I don't know that I'm going to get three streets of value post flop on this or that I should expect it without being beat. You know, so it's sort of, okay, I, I bet flop, get called, and now I'm looking for one more street of value somehow. What's the best way to get that? Um, and I want my, I want to keep my opponent's bluffs in there. So I'm probably going into check call mode here, partially for pot control, partially as a underrepresentation of my hand. But it's hard, pretty hard for me to check fold um, that hand there in that spot. Well, I, I like the idea of overbetting strategy. Like I think okay. there's definitely a place for overbets. You can decide on your game whether it's a balanced place or if it should be bluff heavy or if it should be uh, value heavy. 
But um, I'd want to do it in a situation where I knew how the opponent was going to respond to big and small bets differently. And I'd want to do it on a board, a different board, I think, that because this is so polarizing already to a continuing range with an overbet like that, you can accomplish it with less. And then the only other thing that uh, I would say uh, here is don't show that hand at the end when you fold it. Just fold, say good hand, and don't show that hand because that tells everyone at the table, I fold an overpair to one bet on a scary turn. And it's probably right to do it, but um, the people that are going to be the, the, the bluffers at the table are going to take note at that. And now you're inviting people to bluff you more often than they would otherwise. And that's just not a situation you want to be in if you have a choice. Yeah, that, that's, that was actually the next point I was going to thank, that Thank you for making that, Jim, because was, I was like, don't, there are reasons to show hands and there are reasons and situations to show hands. But this is, you know, the, the and I'm guilty of this too sometimes, but the like, oh, look how hard my life is right. uh, show is not a good reason to show. Like, oh, I'm, I, this, this, this really stinks. So, so look, look, you know, look at my great hand that I'm folding in this situation. You're really telling your opponents a lot. You're telling them that you're folding a hand as strong as Jack's on a pretty innocuous board. Um, and I, yeah, I think you're opening yourself up to, to more pain like this. Yeah, I think part of why we show, and I show too much, I'm trying to get better at it, but because uh, it's kind of fun. But I think, um, you know, I think there's something subconscious about, we think if, if we show, they'll show. And, and then, you know, hopefully they do show and hopefully they show that they had nine, eight suited and you feel just great about your fold and people think you're a genius. Uh, but when they don't show, you're like, oh, <laughs> I guess I just gave information. I got nothing in return. And I just wouldn't, I wouldn't, and I especially wouldn't show in a spot like this where yeah. you've used an overbet already. So you're telling them a lot about how you think about overbets, about how you think about their range. But like, this, this is just a sort of, because it's such an unusual hand, it's particularly just, just don't let them know how you, how you play that because you're giving them a lot of info. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously we weren't there. I'd say, you know, we're going to wrap up the discussion on this one, but I mean, hats off to Josh for, I mean, you, you, you put it out there. This is how we learn too. We don't know the right answer, but I think, you know, you trusted your read as well. And that's something that's important to take note of too. If your read was something was off, if your read was they were slow playing aces or, or something like that, you know, sometimes, you know, the, you, you just, you just, Fold your hand, but yeah, maybe what the guys are saying, don't just don't show it. Just don't let people know what you're thinking because they're going to uh, infer a lot of that. And I think uh, not everybody at the table is going to be paying attention to that, but there'll be those one or two people that are paying attention that are taking note and might be able to exploit you later in the tournament. Good, good discussion, guys. Let's move on to the next one just because we got uh, two more to get through here. Uh, this one's from some donkey named Chris Jones. Uh, you guys have maybe heard of him, <laughs> donkey, whatever, fantastic player. Uh, but Chris, why don't you, uh, we've got the text up here, but why don't you walk us through this hand from the MSPT? Yeah, definitely a donkey <laughs> okay. uh, in, this, in this moment here. Um, okay, so uh, this is uh, day 1B of the MSPT. Uh, we are at the uh, 300, 500, 500 uh, level. Um, and I have uh, 15k um, on the button out of a 20k starting stack. So I'm uh, falling behind some of the field, um, but still pretty healthy. Um, and um, but I should mention, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up too is I think there's some um, 
things we can talk about the hand and whether what the decisions and, and how to play this kind of hand. But also, um, I want to talk a little bit about playing against really quality opponents and how uh, maybe how to get that out of your head sometimes or keep that in your head or whatever. Um, my table was littered with uh, <laughs> some of the best players um, on the MSPT circuit. Uh, I had the Mike Shin as the player of the year, Ryan Fan, who's really good and had a really good main event run a, a couple of years ago. Um, there are a couple other really great players, uh, right all surrounding basically me. Um, so, um, and that brings us, and I've, and I've just been, the other thing is, is I've just been uh, caught bluffing on a pretty, I thought a pretty good bluff, but somebody called me down. So uh, I wasn't unhappy with it, but I'm kind of, I'm falling backwards in terms of the chip stack. Um, so uh, Ryan Fan uh, opens to 1.2K from the hijack, um, and he's he's got a stack of about 40K. He's doing pretty well. He's been very active and aggressive. Um, and I flat uh, with seven of diamonds, seven of hearts um, from the button and the big blind calls. Um, the flop is the jack of diamonds, 10 of spades, three of clubs. Um, and... Uh, at this point, um, I'm mostly, you know, I may call a small bet, but I'm mostly, um, it's, I'm probably with, with two opponents, I'm probably in give up mode at this point. Um, it's not, it's not an ideal flop for me, um, but it happens to check around, um, which makes me think a lot better about my sevens. Um, and the turn is a very, you know, nothing card. It's a two of spades. Um, and again, it checks around to me. So at this point, I'm feeling pretty okay about my sevens. I'm thinking, well, you know, somebody could be sitting there. With, I think we would have heard from a jack at this point. Um, it's possible there are some tens still out there. Um, maybe eights or nines are still sitting around out there that are that are beating me. But for the most part, I'm feeling like I'm I'm in pretty good shape right now. Um, and so I put out um, a into a pot of about third i think it was about 3600 at this point i put out um i put about a bet of 2k um and so the big blind folds and ryan fan calls and the river is the two of diamonds and ryan fan shoves which is a massive overbet. uh that's a it's about i had about 12k behind at this point um so and i think the pot was about 70 400 at that point um and i'm curious what people make of this shove uh i had some thoughts about it but i'm that's where i kind of want to start the discussion and then talk about what what you might do here i mean what what is he representing with a shove like this you know i don't know is he representing overpair a queen i mean does he check back queens kings aces on the flop i can't imagine um so yeah, maybe, check, uh, checks uh, twice checks a, it back twice a set of jacks a set of tens you know now which is now a full house uh pocket threes uh you know what what is he opening with there and then what is he checking that flop on you think if he has an overpair or if he has even like king queen or if he has a jack or a 10 or even like pocket nines he might continue but um the the ones that he would check back that he's now representing a big hand on the river has to be like jacks, tens, or threes, I think. 
that are that are value bets that are value bets on the river. Yeah, it's hard to find value bets on the river that aren't value bets on the turn here, just yeah. because, especially when the flush draw comes. Uh, you have all sorts of suited hands in your range there calling on the button. So he should be, if he's got a 10 or a jack, when the, when the flush goes, when the flop goes check around and it comes around to him on the turn, he's got to be betting even a, a 10 there, right? Am I going crazy there? No, I mean, unless, unless he has a real good reason to believe that Chris will not check this back twice, you know, and if, if your bluff, you know, maybe your prior bluff gave him some indication and that would be the only thing. I mean, if you're right, Jim, I mean, if he's got a hand like that, he should not, I, I'd be shocked if he's checking twice here, unless he's like 80% sure that Chris is going to fire, you know, on, on this board. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just a really interesting spot because I mean, the board comes what running deuces on the turn and river, which also means the board's paired. So like, you know, like we've talked about what is it, what exactly is he representing? Um, I mean, you go back to the flop. So you raise pre-flop. Obviously, Chris calls on the button. Uh, Jack ten three. I mean, you would think if he had like king queen or even eight nine, yeah, yeah. and he, you know, he would see bet that, see bet those hands. And if I mean, once it's checked around, at least I would fire the turn with those exact hands as well. I mean, and yeah, obviously any jack, any ten, probably any pocket pair. Like, if, like, like you know, if Ryan has like sixes or eights or something like that i mean i'd probably bet those hands too i mean especially into a player who i would you know probably deem tight i mean chris would specifically have to have you know a ten or better or like you know some sort of draw to probably continue so i mean it's a little and, surprising and, that would and Ryan chris would... check back and chris check back flop right so exa- now exactly you got, you got the guy in position that checks flop you got the guy in the big blind who's checked twice yeah, I mean, to me, to me, it just looks like it's a hand that, like, it's not even, to me, it looks like Ryan's not even playing his hand. It's more just like, I know Chris is going to fold, so I'm just going to mm-hmm. apply max pressure. I mean, that being said, maybe he gets super, super tricky with, like, ace-deuce suited that went runner-runner trips, mm-hmm. and Chris would never put him on that. But even then, I think he would just bet to extract value. So, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean... Yeah. John, John, did you have something there? Well, I was just going to say from a value point of view, I could see, assuming he got to the river and ignoring if he could get there, but assuming he got to the river, I could see him uh, betting with a hand as weak for value with a hand as weak as ace-10 or king-10 or you know any 10. Uh, because at that point, you really don't think I don't think Chris has an overpair because he didn't bet the flop and he didn't raise pre-flop. Um, Chris could have a hand like Jack, Queen Jack, but on it, when it checked to him on the flop, he would have bet that. So if Ryan had a hand that was as had a, just a, a 10 with something to go with it, uh, you know, anything, uh, I could see him doing that for value. Hmm. Or if he had happened to have pocket threes, he may have slow played there. Um, but it seems like a lot of his hands would have to be bluffs. Although I can't quite figure out what he would have bet. 
since he led and there were only two callers, I'm a little surprised he didn't make the continuation bet on the flop. That's what's confusing me. Yeah, that that was the thing. I, as I was sitting there, like struggling with his hand, I it was like I was struggling to find value and I was struggling to find bluffs. Like I feel like if he's got anything like queen nine, eight nine, you know, anything that's kind of straighty in there, we're going to hear about that before now. If he's got anything, you know, I guess it's some some kind of random ten. I even feel like if he's got if he's got pocket jacks or pocket tens, that the shove doesn't or pocket threes even, the shove doesn't make much sense to me. Like he's he wants to get paid with those, and it's so unlikely that I'm gonna pay him unless I've got something so much what's strong. His, what's his stack size at this point? He has like 40 to 45K. I can't remember exactly, but he's got me well covered. So in that case, this is really looking more like a bluff to me because the way you've played this hand, it's really hard for you to have a hand, and this is not a criticism, uh, but hard for you to have a hand that is comfortable calling an all-in bet. Um, you know, it, cause you have, your hand looks like what you have pocket sevens, mm-hmm. which is a good hand, the way the hand is played out, but it's not very strong and you don't really want to lose an MSP tournament, go out with your tournament life with pocket third pair, you know, or third highest pair on the board. And it's, um, so it's a tough situation. So but it seems like from his perspective, so he has a chance, a good chance, high percentage chance that you're going to fold. And even if you call, he still has 30K in chips, which is still probably above the average stack at this point in the tournament. Right. So it, with that, I think there's a good chance it was a bluff, but he may have done it with a strong hand too to make it look bluffy. I don't know. So. I mean, who would who would call here? I mean, it's easy to say on the sidelines, you know, not ponying up eleven hundred dollars. But I mean, I guess it's also possible that maybe he has four or five and he missed an open ender since it was checked around on the flop. Maybe he's even accidentally bluffing with the best hand with eights or nines, trying to get you off a jack or ten. Uh, yeah, so here's one quick question for you, Chris. Did you ever consider three-betting preflop with the button and your tight image? You know, that's actually the part where I've gone back and forth. I, you know, I've been trying more and more to figure out um, the the sort of the, those middle pair, what to do. And I've, I've really started to narrow in on some of these really – um, middle pair kind of button flatting um, because because I don't want to get pushed off of them because even if Ryan does have a monster under there, I want to still be able to see my equity with my potential set on a seven and get paid with it. Sure. Um, so I, I have not been doing that much. I used to do that a lot more and I've okay. been trying to sort of ramp that down a little. I still do it sometimes, but pretty rarely. So, And I wasn't considering it here, especially with my short stack. Yeah, as I said, the stack size certainly plays into it. I mean, if Ryan's raising from under the gun, I'd probably consider 
you know, maybe just flatting, but you know, he's opening in the cutoff. I think his range is a little wider, but I mean, that being said, I don't blame you for flat calling. I certainly flat call here a good chunk of the time as well. I was just curious if it was, you know, it had even crossed your mind at, at the heat of the moment. I'm trying to come up with uh, some hands here that do we think he ever plays like ace three of spades, ace four of spades, ace five of spades like this, where he opens that wheel ace from the hijack there's so many tens and jacks in the big blind and the uh, button range that he doesn't want to bet it. And uh, he actually has equity to call on that turn with the two of spades and just chooses not to, not to check raise with it. I'm trying, cause like you said, there's just not a lot of real obvious bluffs that don't bet the flop, but still proceed on the turn and then find themselves a spot to bluff on the, uh, on the river. Those, those wheel ace, those weird uh, low suited, cards are the only ones i can think of here that he'd have i would think a suited i would think a suited ace like ace five of spades or something with all the equity down the turn you think would either lead the turn or maybe chuck raise the turn but yeah i that's certainly possible yeah, yeah check raise makes a lot of sense there ultimately i i had ruled those out and what the where i did land was you know that the what you had mentioned jake was that that ace deuce that there are some ace deuces out there that he's potentially turning into as his big value hands here that make the most sense to me. And then the, you know, the bluffs are, are not that many, but maybe some of the gut shots are, are still sticking around, you know, maybe <laughs> something like an eight, seven or something. It's just weird. so hard for me to believe that he would, he would check a ace deuce on a flop like this. Like that's just such a polarized bad hand. You right. know I mean? I, I just would have expected, I would expect him to continue with a hand like, like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good but point. But he could, he could, but I mean, he's got he's got like no equity with ace deuce other than a really crappy ace high. So I would have I would expect him to continuation bet that. Yeah, I, I think I mean as played, I, I probably do call and, and hate it. Um, but just because I just the the story, I have a hard time making sense of the story. And if he's if he's creative enough to to do to play like pocket jacks or pocket tens the way he did there and then make it look bluffy on the river, I might just have to give him credit. But, I mean, what I do know about Ryan Fan, I've, I don't think I've ever played with him, but I've watched him a few times, and, uh, you know, he is, he is that aggressive, and he's very, very capable of making that bluff. Um, whereas, you know, some players you play against, you're like, boy, I just don't think they're ever doing this without the goods. Yeah, for, for me, if, if this is a $150 tournament at Aces, I'm probably calling most of the time. Yeah. but you know, playing in an MSPT is still a big deal for yeah. someone like me. Yeah. So I would have a lot harder time calling it off. That doesn't mean it's not right to call it off, but uh, I feel your pain. No, and that's actually what I was beating myself up over afterward. Is like if it, if this is a standard tournament at running aces or wherever, yeah. I'm calling this every time because it doesn't make that much sense. I, I I feel like I am winning this hand most of the time, but I got caught up in the moment and I was just like I and I kind of was and that kind of like started me just so. I think sometimes you have to be prepared to just you know make make the calls that you would make wherever you make them and, you know, just live with it at that point. I think I should have made this call, but I did end up folding. Well, and I think everything, everything comes down to range versus range, in my opinion. And, you know, even that, knowing that it's a bigger tournament, knowing that people like Ryan Fan and, you know, Kuvang and all these guys, they know it's a bigger tournament. And so to me, they're willing to apply a little bit more pressure than they might otherwise in a smaller tournament. And so I think that makes their range even a little bit wider there 
So, you know, as is one of the inputs into it, how does, how does this being a bigger tournament affect their range and how does it perceive their perspective of my range? Well, they probably perceive that I'm going to be calling, you know, narrower. And so it's probably going to expand their range wider. You know, it's just one input into of many, but I do think they, most of those players recognize that for most of us playing these $1,100 tournaments, it's a big deal and we don't want to bust it. We don't want to pony up another 1100. We might not. Uh, versus some of those players that are going to kind of keep firing. So that that's <laughs> it's it's tough. I mean, I think, and I did some quick math. I'm like, well, if I fold there, I got like 22 bigs. If I call on them wrong, I got zero. If I call on them right, I got like 60. You know, how often am I right here? You know, mathematically, ICM-wise, expected value of tournament, you know, even if it's 50-50, it's a right move, but it's still <laughs> that chance that you're going to be busted. And that's it's easier to say as we're logically assessing it here than when you're in the middle middle of that moment. It sucks. Well, any other, any other thoughts on that, Chris, or do you have any other questions on that you wanted us to address? No, thanks. That was a good discussion. Yeah, great hand. So the next one is a, is a few slides along. So I think what I'll do is I'll just go through the whole thing and then we'll go back and, and kind of pick the spots. He has, he has one particular uh, spot he wants us to address. So let's just go through the whole thing and then we'll kind of go back. And he actually provided a, a, a click by click sort of replay of this. So I might make that available um, in our, in our show notes, but he's got too many good comments in here that I don't want to miss by just looking at the, the action. So this is Rob Adsom. Um, Rob made a really nice deep run, uh, out in uh, Vegas and he came back by the MSPT and he gave us this hand. So kind of like you, Chris, uh, day one B of the MSPT early in the tournament, this is at the 100, 200, 200 level. So even earlier, uh, he's got 23 K up from a 20 K starting stack. So he's got over hundred big blinds there. He had been up to 32K, but recently uh, made a few tight folds that kind of eroded some of his chips, but still obviously uh, well over 100 bigs. Uh, the villain is immediately to his right. And by the way, I love the use of the phrase villain in poker. I mean, it, just, it makes us feel like superheroes, right? Um, but the villain is immediately to his right with 13K. So there's your effective stack of about 65 bigs uh, after recently calling and losing to a short stack shove. He is in his early 30s, and I can tell immediately that he is an experienced player based on his comfort and confidence at the table. His level of experience becomes even more evident as I watch him aggressively use late position to push around the table. He rarely got involved in early position, but mid-position and later, he was playing a high percentage of his hands, most of the time opening to three times the big blind. Three of the four players to my left were very tight and were folding too often, especially in the big blind. This guy, <laughs> I feel like I can sense what he's, this guy was stealing my opportunity to put pressure on the blinds myself. So I had decided that I needed to three bet him a few times in order to stop this nonsense. Uh, so preflop, uh, the preflop action brings one limper from middle position and then the villain raises three times to 600. So the blinds are at 200, big, 200 big blind. Uh, there is a limp middle position, villain raises to 600. I look down at ace of hearts, five of hearts, and decide this is the time to make my stand. I raise to 1,500, so he's questioning the size there. Um, the button and the blinds fold, uh, the limper folds, and the villain calls. All right, so we had a limper, a raise, a he, uh, Rob three bets from late position, I believe, uh, and he gets a heads up with the villain. So pot of 3,700. And the flop is seven of hearts, three of spades, six of diamonds, and we have the ace five of hearts. The villain checks, and I see bet uh, to 2,000. 
I believe this is a pretty good flop for my hand. I have a gut shot and backdoor nut flush draw. Although I put him on a very wide range, I expect it will be difficult for him to call with unpaired overcards and with no flush draw. He calls fairly quickly. The pot is now 7,700. The turn is the seven of diamonds. So now we have the seven of hearts, three of spades, six of diamonds, seven of diamonds on the board. The villain checks. And then Rob says, okay, here's where I think some good discussion can take place. What am I representing? Does the paired board help me or scare me? Is it possible for me to have a full house? How would I proceed if I did have a full house? How would I proceed if I had an overpair? How would I proceed if I'm holding ace-king or ace-queen? I decide to check back, hoping to display strength rather than weakness. I am hoping he leads out on the river so that I can raise and represent a monster. In hindsight, I think my check looks more like ace-king, ace-queen than anything else. So the pot is 7,700 after the check, after turn goes check, check. River brings the nine of hearts. So just to remind us, the board, seven, three, six, seven, nine, no flushes. To my surprise, the villain checks. He has 9,500 left in his stack. At this point, I think he is hoping for a check back with a bluff catcher like pocket fours, eights, eight, nine, ace-king, ace-queen, ace-jack, ace-three, ace-six. Rather than shove, I decide to bet 6,000. I intentionally used this bet sizing, thinking it might look stronger than an all-in bet, but it didn't work. <laughs> so I'm curious as to what the panel thinks. The villain tanks for about two minutes and then makes the correct call. He turns over six of diamonds, four of diamonds, and takes the pot with two pair. My soul was crushed, and I felt like a complete donkey for about an hour. I'm looking forward to hearing the panel's opinion, but in hindsight, I think that my bluff looked like I was holding the big ace that completely missed. It turns out that the villain is the current HPT player of the year and has over $3 million in career earnings. The happy ending of the story is that I eventually knocked him out of the tournament. Okay, so that is, that is the, uh, the story. If I click on this, can you guys actually see this if I go here? Do, 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 do. Do you guys see that? Oh, you don't? Okay. Okay, well, go ahead and with your thoughts, I'm going to try to share this click-through screen so we have something to look at. Do you guys see that now? Okay, so who's, yeah, got, some, who's got some thoughts on this deal? Well, I guess one thing that... Uh, this is another one of those spots, like similar to the first question that we were looking at today, where much of it depends on, and I hate to be the, the it depends guy, but uh, it depends on who is that guy that you are trying to exploit with this bet here. Because you said on the turn, you checked behind, and that could be viewed with as strength or that could be viewed as weakness. And then on the river, you choose this pot, this bet size, because it uh, uh, looks stronger than it than a shove would. And I completely get that. I always wonder if people would shove with the nuts in spots if they could get more value with a smaller uh, with a smaller hand. Um, so it's just one of those things where, unfortunately, we don't know unless we know how this opponent actually responds to that. And uh, if you don't have a lot of information on them, I would say try and exploit them less and just try and play the hand more according to the textbook, not the textbook, but uh, if you don't know enough about them, don't try and exploit them, I guess would be the answer that I have for that. If you, Because uh, so much of this depends on how are they going to view strength, how are they going to view uh, weakness. Mm -hmm. So for me, the one, the first thing I look at is 
I do think the three bed is a little bit too small, especially with the limber in there. Um, so it's one limp for 200, a raise to 600, a three bet the 1500 rolls back to our opponent. It's only 900 from him to win, what, 2100 at that point or whatever it is. So, I mean, I think if I'm going to go for a three bet, I'm probably going to make it. I mean, I would make it probably at least 2000, maybe even up to 2400. I mean, part of I, I think part of the raise amount depends on how likely you think your opponent's going to call. If you think your opponent's going to call more often, you probably make it a bigger amount and obviously vice versa. And then on the flop, I think it's pretty standard where, I mean, you're going to get checked to, you're going to see bet for about half pot, give or take, maybe 60% pot. Yeah, it looks like a 2000 chip bet into 3,500. So that's about right. I mean, I think that's relatively standard and the opponent calls and then the turn brings another seven, which does pair the top card. So if you, I mean, you start thinking about your three betting range or C betting range, how many sevens are you going to have in it? Probably not a ton. So really at this point, you're telling your opponent that you specifically have an over pair. So, I mean, if I'm, if I'm your opponent, I probably check call here. I mean, depending on the size of the bet or whatever. Um, and I guess for me personally, just as a rule of thumb, I think it's really tough to get away. I think it's a lot tougher to get away with bluffs on paired boards, especially when the top card is a low card after you would three bet. So I think that's one thing I would keep in mind. And then once the river rolls out, um, what was the river card again? It was a, it was a nine. So again, just another low card. I mean, if, I mean, if that river is, you know, any face card, if it brings in, a diamond draw, um, if it brings in a straight draw of some sort, you know, maybe you can represent a little bit more, but even then, you three bet pre-flop, so what are you really representing there? So, yeah, don't get me wrong, I, I actually, I'm a big proponent of the bet 6,000 instead of shoving all in, because it does look stronger. Um, so I like that, but just the idea of on this particular board, with the board being paired, with it all being low cards, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good call by really good call by your opponent, and I mean, yeah, I think the big takeaway for me is just you know, you're trying to tell a story, and yeah, I mean, basically at this point, you're telling your opponent that you specifically have an overpair. I mean, if you three bet like pocket eights and the river came a nine, you might not bet the river. So I mean, that takes away that hand as well. But anyways, any other thoughts, guys? Yeah, uh, so I, <laughs> I agree with uh, Jake that. I like a little bit bigger of a three bet on the flop. Um, I think 1500 is just a little bit or pre-flop. Uh, I think 1500 is a little bit too small. And then when we look at the flop, the, the flop, I agree. It's not a bad flop for your hand, but it is a bad flop for your story mm -hmm. because you're representing uh, a big hand. I mean, ace king, ace queen, Aces, kings, queens, maybe something as low as tens against a very active player like this. But those are the hands that you're supposed to have for value. And this is not a great flop for any of those except for your pocket pairs. So your pocket pairs, it's a good flop for. But all of your big aces, king, queens, uh, ace, king, all of your aces, it's a bad flop for so if you're going to continuation bet here, which I like, you could do it with either continuation bet with the plan of giving up 
or you've got to continue on the turn again, which basically says I have an overpair. And if you continuation bet on the turn and then bet again on the river, I don't think he can make this call. Now, the risk is his range does contain a lot of sevens. So it's very possible he could have you uh, beat here as well. But there aren't as many sevens in the deck since there are two on the board, too. So that's my take. Yeah, I, I really like what you said there, John, because I, I think the 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 line here um, where we're we're basically, you know, we are representing a big hand and we may like this board with the specific hand that we have, but I think this board, although it doesn't really favor either of us that much, I think it more favors the caller of the three bet than the three better uh, once we hit this flop. And then... So if we're going to continue, we've got to continue this line of having a big overpair, I think, um, sort of aces, kings, or queens. And so when that turn hits, if we have aces, kings, or queens, I think once we check this back, I, I the part of the, your summary that I think is the part that I question the most is that this conveys some amount of strength, you know, or could be conveyed as like, oh, this is scary. Somebody's trapping me kind of thing. I think this screams, okay, I can rule out aces, kings, and queens at this point. Because I think aces, kings, and queens should be continuing um, on this turn card and then you can you know you can make that choice and and sort of represent that on the river but at this point if you're if you're not there it's really hard for i mean i think at that point when we hit the river there's a few of those over pairs left you know maybe jackson tens are still hanging around um but once we hit the river it's hard to see i mean it really does you're exactly right i think it really does look like a big ace that has missed and is trying to to sort of find um you know make up for it on that that, the river and 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 steal the pot and so i think we either need to uh continue this story through the entire hand or if i reached this river the way we reached it i'm pretty much in give up mode maybe five to ten percent of the time my ace high is good um but i'm i'm pretty much checking back and when we were in the earlier stage of the hand and we were talking about checking back on the uh turn and whether that was going to be projecting strength or weakness and then on the river talking about what bet size to use and how that'll get viewed as being stronger than a shove. Um, one of the things that makes those difficult questions is we don't know how this particular villain is going to respond to that approach. But uh, now that you've gone through this hand, like you actually, you can tell now because it's already happened. Like, like you can actually make some notes on this player that are really helpful uh, about how they view those kinds of plays. So I think, I think, you can clearly say that checking on the turn, he did not think that that was strong because that made it easy for, easier for him to call that river bet. And uh, you can sort of just like factor that into your decision-making in the future with this player pool if you think he's representative of it. Um, 
just so if you're in the in that position again you've got a little more data but it's just a it's just a tricky spot when you um cap your range like that on the turn if that's what we think he's done yeah any other thoughts guys the only other thing i'd maybe add to it is now that we know what our opponent had which was you know six four diamond specifically on the turn when our when we checked our opponent he's betting into us well okay, well, we've got a lot of the straight draws. We got all the, di you know, we have the diamonds as well. So it's like, again, what is our opponent really representing? It has to specifically be an over pair. So, yeah, I, again, easy, easy to say from the sidelines, but, I mean, hey, great call by our opponent. Do you guys, do you guys like it all? Um, you know, we're kind of getting off here. I'm getting off. But, like, do you like just to check back on this flop? I mean, to me, this is a – I know we want to, like, we want to three-bet and start to put them in their spot a little bit. And so I don't mind the three bed, the sizing. We can we can debate that. I think it should be a little bigger too, unless you're just trying to isolate, which case, you know, that that's going to do it most of the time. You know, I mean, I, I kind of like a check back here. I know maybe we want to stick with a story, but I feel like we have so much equity that, you know, if we get check raised here on the flop, I just hate myself um, for not checking and realizing some of this. You know, we have a gut shot, we have an over, we have backdoor hearts. So to me, that's to me, I like a, a check on the flop, and, and part of that is because even some of the stuff that we're discussing with, with the brokest stuff is that it sort of conveys that we have a medium strength hand, um, you know, which means that, you know, yeah, we can't represent aces and kings, but we can represent some value later in the hand. I think when we bet flop, it's either it's an over pair or it's two big cards that missed, right? I mean, it's, it's really that, like what you guys were saying earlier, kind of our range is these, you know, 60 combinations of pairs and these, you know, 80 combinations of unpaired hands or whatever it might be. Uh, whereas I think a check back almost gives a little bit of a warning that we have sort, sort of a, ma a medium made hand. You know, plus it's pot control and there's a lot of great turn cards for us. I mean, the, the seven of diamonds isn't one of them, but there's a lot of really good turn cards <laughs> that we can enjoy there. And you've got some showdown value against a hand yeah. like King, 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 King Jack. And yeah, I do agree. I mean, you're the three better pre-flop like in the, board comes seven high so yeah it's yeah your your range is really polarized in this spot for sure yeah i, I like that too a lot because I, I think that's maybe what i'm stumbling to try to say is because this flop is so uh, sort of outs you know does not favor our range very much like i think that if we can see bet this we either have to think we're this is a three barrel plan where we're going to have to represent a massive overpair, and assuming this board doesn't really degrade, we're going to have to represent an overpair the whole way down. Or I think I like this idea of checking this flop, and we can sort of navigate from there, and we don't have to we don't have to represent you know as massive of a hand as we go. And I think the 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 part. The, what we, we we either have to do one or the other, right? And if we do the, okay, C-bet, but then check the turn and then put a big bet on the river, that's a that's a harder story to, to tell, I think, in the end. Yeah, and I mean, Actually, I, I like to see if, you know, if he's going to check flop, but we don't know why he's checking flop. Is he checking to induce? Is he, what's well, our Jim, he, well, you know, if he's checked, what he's checking for, you know, but if he checks twice, now we can maybe take a, take a stab and it almost serves like a river blocker bet on the turn. And we're sort of controlling the size of the pot a little bit there too. Also, I think uh, just because of our exact hand in this spot, we're in one of those positions where if we do check behind on the flop, as Steve suggests here, 
you're in a position where a lot of the hands on the turn are either going to help your hand. A lot of the cards on the turn are either going to help your hand or your three betting range. Yeah. So you right. have a lot of ways to actually improve your hand or to represent uh, some high cards and get them off that. So in a way, I think checking behind might be clearly the best play because it gives you so many more options on the turn and river uh, that you aren't kind of committing to a particular part of your range at this point if you when you bet the flop. Yeah, I mean, we're loving a queen or higher um, for exactly the reason you're saying, whether we have it or not. Because if we're checking back, we're checking back flop, and then a queen comes, well, clearly we must have ace-queen. <laughs> you know, if that's what we're betting on the turn. It's a, it's a much more believable story. Interesting. Well, any other, any other thoughts on this one? Good stuff, Rob. All right. No. I mean, just great hand history writing. That's the most fun I've had on this in a while. Way to (laughs) put it down. I love that. Yeah, I thought it was a great job of actually getting to the getting to the root of of it. And I think you know the fact that it took like four slides to put it in there was a good. That was a good sign. (laughs) The only other thing I would maybe add is just at the very end of the slide, we found out that this was you know a really good player. So with that in mind maybe it's a spot you don't want to take a stab at. I mean, just knowing that he's probably on the second or third or fourth level with you in in that regard. So just, you know, again, you know, you may or may not want to find a better opponent to make this play against, I guess is my point. Yeah. That's always an interesting dilemma for me because I feel like the good players are able to fold hands too, (laughs) but, but you're right. the, The good players can also read your soul. You know, that's, that's the hard part for me is like, you know, I mean, I've seen good players lay down some monster hands before, too, because they just know they can. But, yeah, I, you're right. I mean, when you start taking this sort of a line where you're starting to be ultra creative, where you're going to be, like, trying to overthink it a little bit, I think that's tougher against a really good player. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Okay. Yeah, the only edge you're going to have against a better player is going to be a card range edge. And that's the, hmm. you know. Uh, being in position is great, but you're never going to have a strategy edge. You're never going to have a skill edge. You're never going to have a read edge. So you just got to play tighter against them than against the other people at the table. I mean, that's been, <laughs> that's the only thing that I find that works. Do you guys do this? Cause I mean, literally, you know, the words that he used were words I just used in our home game where I'm like, you know, uh, we I had two, two guys that were two people that were raising in particular spots, like Jake Ingebrigtsen was raising my big blind. And I was saying in my commentary, okay, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for a spot to three bet Jake out of the big blind. And then Jill Burke was raising a late position quite a bit. And I said to myself, I'm looking for a spot to three bet her. And I kind of had this similar sort of mentality where, Ooh, I picked up a marginal hand like this, sort of a suited ace. And like, this is my time. And I'm just curious too, you know, Rob obviously had that same thought. Is that, good thinking is that a leak sort of thinking where you're sort of trying to now manufacture scenarios that aren't really there like is that or the way rob and i thinking about this is that an okay approach or should or is that a form of tilt in a way that we're actually not playing optimal because we're looking for spots to kind of push back against these these aggressive players i mean i guess i would say you could maybe say that. I mean, especially early on in the tournament when, I mean, you're so far away from the money too. I mean, at this point, you start, you're, it's almost like, you know, like you said, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to plot out a plan and then it becomes a script and then, but really like, what are you, I mean, outside of, you know, maybe not having your big blind raised every single time. I mean, other than that, I mean, sometimes like, what is that really accomplishing? But 
Well, because because even then, like I'm I'm just a I tell people all the time I'll I'll fold my big blind early in tournaments, whatever. I mean, right. I'll get them back later. I don't I just don't worry about it. But right. there is that once in a while where you're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> this is like the third time now. Pattern yeah. developing here, John. What did you have to say about that? Well, I was going to say in this particular situation where you're directly behind this person, um, and there's a lot of other weak players that he is taking advantage True. of. Um, I understand the desire to want to do the three bet and want that to succeed to say, Hey, you know, you got to let me have my fair share too, where <laughs> yep. since I'm not as good as you, maybe my fair share is one third of the time, <laughs> but at least it gives you some opportunity uh, to play those hands. So trying to find a spot to take a stand isn't all bad, particularly he is being more aggressive he's being aggressive more frequently than his hands should warrant, which means he's playing a very wide range, mm-hmm. which means that you're aggressive. And obviously he did it with six, four, right? So he is playing a wide range that has been confirmed. So trying to three bet him, uh, isn't bad. And, and ace five is a fine hand to try that with. Um, but I think if, if that's your goal, then you either need to, Cut your losses sooner or continue with the story to so that you can actually uh, achieve that goal. Yeah, I don't mind doing it with an ace because you got the blocker, but exactly, John, like you said, at some point, you know, maybe maybe worth, you know, just backing off and moving on to the next hand. Chris? Yeah, I, I mean, I the thing that I think about this is that if you, you – it's more about a strategic sort of objective. It sh- like for me, at least if I'm doing it because, okay, this person is three betting me all the time right. or they're, you know, they're targeting my blind and I've, I've got to change up something that I'm doing to, to exploit that or take advantage of that. Um, I think that's a, you know, that's a fine thing and you need to make those sort of adjustments as you're playing. If it's like, if if it's really starts to be like uh, I am gonna get back at this, you know, you are you are not gonna, you you know sending the kind of that sending a message type betting I think is a really dangerous road to get down because the thing about it is I think for a player of this quality especially I don't think that message is even gonna be received right they're just gonna be like oh they got a, they got aces this time you know they oh they got a really big hand you know you might be thinking oh I got I got ace four suited and I'm gonna send them a message here and they're just thinking <laughs> oh he's Oh, he's got kings. I fold, you know. So, it's it's uh it's that sending a message bet. I think is a is a it can be a form of tilt because it can be I think a dangerous road to go down. Yeah, and then you know the, at least uh, you know in the earlier days, which for me is like two years ago. You know, you'd, I'd sort of let the testosterone piece kick in a little bit, and be like, oh, okay, they're not going to do that to me anymore. So I'm going to call, you know, or that kind of thing. Or, or then, you know, as that progressed to, okay, now I'm not going to push back by calling. I'm going to push back by three betting. And then something like this happens, you know, and then it's like, okay, now I've just like incented them even more to do more because like it didn't work. You know what I mean? Like if the three betting works, then you feel like I've made some progress on this. I'm going to shut them down a little bit when you end up three betting and then checking back and they take the pot or whatever. And you're like, this that totally backfired. You know, that, that's where it feels like you're almost making things worse. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing you have to remember with players this good that are play aggressive like this. They're used to people getting 
frustrated right. to the point that they need to play back. So that's partially why he is able to make this call. It's because his image has earned it. You that's know? a super good point. So it, it, it makes it really, t- I mean, this, the player reminds me a lot of playing when I play against Koo. Yeah. I just absolutely hate it because it feels like no matter what I do, he does everything better than I do. Kuvang, that is. Yeah, and, and he's just such a, a bad human being too, right? I mean, can we call Koo out on this podcast? Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, if you know Koo, he's one of the greatest people on earth. Yeah, it, well, you're not at the table. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Jim, did you have something there? Oh, I just want to say you don't know Koo. I don't know who this person is, but I feel like I know something about them. He's a fantastic player and a fantastic dude. Yeah, I can tell. Um, I was just going to say, I think when when you know when guys like this show up who are kind of trying to run the table, and as John pointed out, they're playing a wider, more range than their hands represent. Like they're playing a higher frequency than their hands actually allow them to play well. Um, you, You. you shouldn't invent spots to go after them, but I think you should take the ones that come and mm. you should just do it with a plan that suits the the hand that you're working with. Like ace five suited, maybe the canonical three bet bluff hand. Uh, but it, one of the things that makes it great is that when you flop that flush draw, you've got all this extra equity and it blocks them from having aces when you pre-flop, when you, when you raise them. But once you get to the flop with it and they have... Uh, called and you get that flop um that doesn't mean that you have to pretend every three bet was pocket aces either uh because your strategy was really just to take advantage of his wide opening range and make him fold a bunch of those when when you three bet him with the ace and when he doesn't fold them then uh, i'm not sure what the plan should be but uh you don't don't feel like you have to take that hand all the way just because you picked a good three bet spot and the guy didn't fold I love it. And just, just a little bit of a tangent there. I'm already seeing these t-shirts printed up. Uh, Ace five suited a canonical three bed bluff hand. <laughs> Is that what you said? A canonical three bed <laughs> bluff hand? <laughs> Something like that. I think it sounds better coming out of your mouth. Oh, I, don't know about that. I had to write it down. No, that's, that's good stuff. Really good. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. Anything else on, on Rob's hand or any tangents off of that? I know we're, we're a little bit late, but uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, good stuff, guys. Good good stuff here. A uh, couple of things as we wrap up. And if you guys have anything else, just jump on in here uh, at any point in time. But uh, thanks to you guys. Uh, thanks. I know Jake just headed out, had to head out a little bit early. But Jim Reed, John Somsky, Chris Jones, thanks to you guys. Um, reminder, on Wednesday at 6.30 Central Time, Chapter 6 of the Brokus Book, led by Cheyenne Bhattacharya. And then next Monday at 1 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon, Central Time, uh, we'll be interviewing Maria Ho. Hopefully, we can get our Facebook Live uh, feed up for that. Uh, at minimum, uh, you'll see it on podcast, on YouTube, that sort of thing. Feel free to send in any questions you have for Maria. Um, we got a few spots available if you want to beg and plead uh, to uh, – and we take bribes. Uh, we take bribes if you want to be on the air and, and interview Maria. I'm just kidding about that. Chris Jones looked like he's ready to call his lawyer. Um, <laughs> but anything uh, – If you, any questions, I'll go check out rec.poker. Go check it out, you guys. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff out there. If you have any questions, reach out, man. That's what we're here for. Uh, as we've said many, many times, we're really about trying to build – uh, a positive and encouraging, a vibrant poker learning community. 
Uh, we've got content that we think it's great, especially for the recreational player. But really at the core of what we're trying to do is build relationships, build community, and we'd love to have you connect with us on that deal. So go out there, check it out. If you're looking for ways to help us out, if you're saying, man, I, I can't become a member, but I want to support Rec Poker, you know, go, go out on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, like us, rate us, review us, all that stuff is bigger than you realize. That helps us a ton. Uh, we put out weekly tweets also. Uh, we're doing, we read some articles from 888 Poker. We put out some information about those. Uh, retweet those. All of that kind of stuff just helps us uh, grow the brand and grow what we're trying to do and, and build more relationships with more cool people. <laughs> so just, just let other people know uh, what we're up to, man. We appreciate all of that. And uh, finally, just uh, a reminder, Running Aces Racetrack and Casino, they've been our official sponsor since the beginning and Learn Pro Poker has just jumped on here recently uh, as a sponsor for the podcast. So support them uh, as much as you can. And that's it. Guys, thanks so much, man. We'll chat uh, next week. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>